Welcome to On Health with Houston Methodist. I'm Zach Moore. I'm a photographer and editor here, and I'm also a longtime podcaster. I'm Katie McCallum. I'm a former researcher turned health writer, mostly writing for our blogs. I'm Todd Ackerman. I'm a former medical reporter, currently a, a editor for Houston Methodist. I'm Kim Rivera, Houston Weber, and I'm a copywriter here at Houston Methodist. And Todd, what are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about cholesterol. Um, what is cholesterol, Todd? That's my question for you. <laughs> Starting with the basics. <laughs> uh, cholesterol is a waxy substance that the body needs for certain functions, but it, too much of it can lodge in your arterial walls and form plaque that uh, narrows your arteries and can rupture and lead to heart attacks. That was a fantastic definition. That was really I'm good. giving you like 10 out of 10 on the spot. Wow. Just okay. defined it. Yeah. That was awesome. Okay. Nice job. <laughs> Thank you. I think my experience with cholesterol has been hearing the terms, oh, high cholesterol, low cholesterol, yeah. and then seeing maybe like diagrams and like health books where it's like the cross section of your arm. And it says, if you continue to live an unhealthy lifestyle, that your arteries will just continue to, to kind of close up. Right. And that's, that's what my, that's where my mind goes when I hear this. And that's pretty much what happens. Right? That's right on. Yeah. Yeah. Mine goes to eggs. Why is that? <laughs> well, because you you hear eggs are like a healthy food, but you hear people be like, oh, don't eat too many eggs. They have cholesterol in them. You're going to get high cholesterol, um, which I think I've also heard recently that like that might not really be totally true and that we might be kind of villainizing the cholesterol in eggs and other foods a little too much. Well, that was the old wisdom. Um, yeah. The thinking has certainly changed. That's what we'll be exploring in today's podcast. Okay. Egg yolks in particular, people. So a lot of people... Yeah. So egg whites, it's like you order an egg white omelet and you're like healthier. It's because, well, they're like less calories, but it's, oh, there's no cholesterol now. So mm. the egg whites are healthier than eating a whole egg. Well, I feel like that's the other thing that I kind of know about cholesterol. It's something that I always thought, oh, well, that's for, for older people. Like when you grow older, mm -hmm. like you got to look out for that. Right. And I'm still mid thirties. So I'm still making that mental shift. Like you're not a young man anymore. Right. So no, you really yeah, got to start like, well, that's like 40 years away for me. But no, it's like you're here. You need to start the things you do now are going to affect you for the rest of your life. And you know, you don't want to turn around and I'm sorry, you're all your arteries are blocked because you've been drinking seven soft drinks a day for the last 40 years of your life. That's where I am right now. So I'm still making that, that mental shift. It sounds like it's very visceral for you right now. It's, it's coming at me fast. Y'all. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned in the trailer that uh, that you didn't really, you weren't really familiar with these matters. No LDL or anything like that. No. Yeah. Have you? Did you rush out after that to go have it tested? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that you would inform me, which which uh, this podcast is very well, important. Maybe, Thank you. Maybe you should resolve to do that now. Wait, I might. I might. Report back at a future podcast on what your what your results were. Part of what we're talking about today, Todd, is what what should those numbers be? Like what range is a good range for your own cholesterol? And who do we talk to about that today, Todd? We talked to Dr. Kurum Nasser, who's a preventative cardiologist at Methodist. He not only lays out the ideal numbers, uh, but also talks about how the thinking about cholesterol has really changed in recent years. It was a pretty enlightening conversation for me. Hello, Dr. Nasser. Um, good to have you here to talk with us today. Uh, Doc, thank you so much for having me here today. So we're going to talk about cholesterol, specifically high cholesterol. Generally, is, is there a consensus that high cholesterol leads to cardiovascular disease? So over the last, I, I would say over the last three decades, now we have strong consensus in both the medical and scientific communities that uh, bad cholesterol or high cholesterol 
specifically called the low density cholesterol ldl is one of the most important risk factors for that so what's cholesterol really it's kind of fat traveling into the body attached to proteins and a high exposure over a long period of time can increase the risk of those fat deposits happening under the blood lining of the blood vessels and if they get oxidized with inflammation they can start building plaques which has many composition of fat fiber calcification and the consequences of that that it can start narrowing your arteries um that could lead to some chronic conditions like having chest discomforts or having pain in your leg with exercise but the most significant consequence is increasing the risk of heart attack or strokes with plaque rupture that what happens that the platelets try to block that bleeding and by doing so can create a clot that blocks the artery the oxygen the nutrients to the heart and uh, uh, the brain and cause the heart attack and stroke So you you mentioned uh bad cholesterol LDL what's a number that's sort of definitely too high that's a sign of a problem well it's i would say a moving target we used to think it was more than 190 the threshold came down to 160 130 but now that's in, total cholesterol or the, LDL we're talking about the LDL so the total cholesterol equates to around 200 to 280 in that range so now talking about just the bad cholesterol ldl which is the most important one is in general it's thought that it's optimal if it's less than 100 uh if it's 100 to 130 suboptimal elevated more than 130 high if it's more than 160 and very high more than 190 but that's not the whole story the cholesterol now we know and especially the bad cholesterol you cannot take just the numbers into account it all depends whether you have an underlying heart disease like a prior heart attack a blocked artery uh reduction in the blood flow in the legs or stroke and then the levels become much more different because then you may want to drop your bad cholesterol or the normal bad cholesterol should be around 70 or lower whereas if you did not have any prior heart attack or stroke then it all depends how much underlying plaque buildup or atherosclerosis you're harboring and depending upon what you have then the thresholds can be decided accordingly so with new patients that aren't presenting with issues do you do any sort of scanning absolutely so if you look at the newer guidelines this suggests that if you are uncertain about your risk for example a 60 year old male would walk into my clinic and have average ldls of around 130 and um, they had a family history they are non-diabetic their blood pressure is well controlled and the question really is what do you do about this cholesterol now the answer depends upon what's your risk of having a heart attack or stroke now historically what we have done is taken these risk factors all that i mentioned and whether you are a smoker and diabetes and put them in a model and it would spit out your risk of having a heart attack in the next 10 years the general recommendation is if your 10 year risk is 7 and a half 10% or more of having a heart attack you should consider therapies apart from lifestyle intervention like statins that most of us would have heard and similar lipid lowering therapies to reduce your risk what we and other have shown that actually this mathematical modeling is subpar in a sense that almost half of the individuals that we would recommend committing to 
lowering cholesterol for their lifetime have no plaque buildup if you would have done a non-contrast CT scan, commonly known the coronary calcium testing. And they can avoid committing to those therapies. So in general, in our clinic, most of these decisions are based on whether you have any underlying disease, yes or no, and how much. For the same person who doesn't have any disease, we have very flexible goals. We engage in conversations about more lifestyle, about modifying their diet, weight reduction, more exercise that can help with 10 to 15% of cholesterol lowering. We offer them an option if they want to go on a cholesterol-lowering pill, but they have flexibility, and the goal is not to dictate. However, if you're one of those individuals who have tremendous amount of disease, for example, if you have a calcium score more than 100, which is considered heart disease equivalent, that means you should be treated as intensely as somebody, one of your peers who might have a heart attack. So in essence, what your cholesterol numbers are, how do you get treated, especially if you don't have heart disease, at least in 2023, there is a significant movement in the direction, not looking at cholesterol in isolation, but putting that together, how much atherosclerosis plaque buildup that you can see with simple testing like the coronary artery calcium test. I think most people know LDL, bad cholesterol, and HDL, good cholesterol, but you never hear much about triglycerides. What, how important are they? They're an important part of the composition. So they are the ones that store the energy. So think about triglycerides. Are You're having calories, and when there are excess calories, the body try to convert that into fat. And that's how the triglycerides are stored, um, either in the belly, the liver, and the blood. Now, historically, of course, LDL are considered the more important. So I can give you an analogy for the general public to understand. So LDL can be considered as the fuel or the gas, whereas things like triglycerides and HDL and inflammation can be thought as the triggers. So both have different mechanism uh, of inciting the actual disease, which is the plaque buildup under the blood vessels. However, the mechanisms are entirely different. So as far as LDL is concerned, most of the time they are not impacted as much as with lifestyle intervention. But for triglycerides, which are critically important, uh, the key things are addressing your insulin resistance via weight loss, cutting back on sugars, carbs, saturated fats, trans fats, aerobic exercises, and if needed, then there are some medications that can be used. However, the most important focus for the triglycerides is it's a great barometer for your actual cardiometabolic health, whereas the LDL has a more genetic predisposition and and because that's how much your liver produces and clears. Both critically important, different mechanisms, but the most important piece still remains the bad cholesterol. And and what's the current thinking on HDL? I can remember when there was a lot of excitement about this, how protective it was. There was there were drugs in the pipeline that raised people's HDL. As I recall, there were like, like some deaths with one of those trials. And after that, I never heard much about HDL. It seemed like people were saying to me, we don't really know what to make of HDL. Did that kill off all the research with it? 
Actually, as far as increasing HDL, so historically, what's HDL? HDL is considered the so-called good cholesterol. What it means, if your numbers are high, it indicates that you may have a better proportion of bad versus the good cholesterol. So it means that the HDL is clearing as much as possible. Um, For my patients and colleagues, I like to give an analogy. Think about HDL as a dump truck. The liver secretes those dump trucks. It goes into the blood vessels, pick up the garbage, which is the bad cholesterol, and dump it back into the liver. Now, what we have also learned over the last two decades, and especially over the last five years, is a very high HDL may not be a good thing. Actually, what we have seen a phenomena of a U-shaped curve, that means at the very low level of HDLs, which are more indicator of insulin resistance, naturally there is a higher risk of having a heart attack and stroke. But even among individuals who have the highest levels of HDL, which goes above 90 or 100, there is an increased risk of having a heart attack. So why is that? Um, Now we are learning that it's not the amount of good cholesterol in the body, but it's the function of good cholesterol in the body. So again, as I said, these are dump trucks. If rather than dumping back into the liver, if they just keep on hanging in the blood, there is more transfer of the bad cholesterol back to the vessels and cause of the plaque buildup. Actually, at Houston Methodist, we have one of our prominent biochemists, Henry Ponwell, who have identified a test that can look at the HDL functionality. And his group, and we just received a major NIH grant to study this whole phenomena of HDL function, uh, which has been, I would say, plagued with controversies. So we are very hopeful of now identifying where the real issue is, is going to be around the function of HDL, but not how much HDL you have. For the average layperson out there, is there a window that they should want to see their HDL within? Yes, absolutely. So for an average person, you know, you should try to have your HDL more than 40. Now, less than 40 is more of an indication of your poor cardiometabolic health. And now what are the things that are going to increase your HDL? There are about four or five major things. One is an optimal diet, high in fiber, low in trans fats, um, as saturated fats, uh, cutting back on carbs, sugars. Again, the same things that are going to affect the triglycerides. Um, Of course, some studies suggest one to two glasses of red wine may also help with the HDL, but losing weight, uh, aerobic exercises, and quitting smoking, all of these things improve HDL. So in essence, HDL is a great marker that can tell me what your lifestyle is. If it's going in the wrong direction, it's time to put a lock on the fridge and bring out your running shoes. But so you want like 40 to what, 75 or Around so? that range, yes. Yeah. Now, of course, the question really is, Todd, is why are we worried about these numbers? Why you and I and our colleagues and our peers and our communities are having conversation around LDLs and bad, high bad cholesterol and trying to achieve good cholesterol is because we are trying to avoid having a heart attack and stroke. 
Now, as I said, what we have learned, especially over the last five years, that historically we used to focus on the cholesterol numbers a lot. And there was a reason. One, it's one of the most important risk factors. Uh, you have treatment that you can do something about it. And it gave us a good guesstimation of what you're actually happening inside. Now, in 2023, over the last 10 years, now we have known we have simple methods and tests that can tell us whether the effect of these good, bad, fat cholesterol combination has that resulted in any damage, and if yes, and how much. So let me give you an example. About 50% of individuals who have their LDL in the worst range and may have a low HDL and even may have a high triglycerides. And they would walk into my clinic. How many do you think that if we did a CT scan would have no plaque? Some significant percentage. Yeah, almost 50% of them would have no disease, but these are the ones that we want to treat them more intensely. On the other hand, about 40% of individuals who have no none of these disorders, who may have a normal HDL, they may have an HDL of 50, an HDL of 95, and a triglycerides less than 100, they may have the underlying plaque buildup. Now, if you follow these individuals, actually the ones who have the disease and normal cholesterols are going to have more heart attacks and strokes than those who have the worst cholesterols but no disease. So in essence, that's kind of the big message that in absence of your prior heart attack or stroke, truly the numbers can be less meaningful if you look at in isolation unless and until you do some testing like a heart scan to look for the chronic calcium or a neck ultrasound to see if you have a plaque buildup or not because otherwise we'll be making these decisions in a vacuum and we may not identify the right patient who may need the right treatment at the right time. So why is there so much focus on cholesterol numbers instead of these tests that can tell you? So again, historically, up? as you know, for various reasons. Number one is access. Um, cholesterol testing, and these are blood works. You can easily get them. Secondly, historically, the guidelines have been more reluctant to recommend newer tests unless and until there are randomized trials showing that utilizing that test will help reduce outcomes. And thirdly, historically, most of the preventive cardiologists have been lipidologists, so, and we didn't have data. However, over the last five to 10 years, mostly from our groups and our colleagues in the country, clearly have shown that the value of the coronary artery calcium testing, especially in identifying those who need treatment, is pretty high. And actually, in 2019, the newer guidelines brought that in and updated that recommendation. So if you look at Houston Methodist, the practice, if that's really one of the most growing spaces uh, where almost about, I think, fifteen to 20,000 patients each year get coronary artery calcium testing, that has doubled or tripled over the last three years, happening all across the country. Unfortunately, Medicare has yet not responded because it still consider these tests as part, not part and parcel of the regular care. 
Um, we are still working with CMS to get it reimbursed. However, at places like Houston Methodist and most of the other, you can pay around 100 to $150 out of pocket to get that test. That's the best way to get it rather than going through your insurance? Yes, huh. right now. We are hopeful in the next few years it should be covered by insurance, but the question then will become how much would be the out-of-pocket cost again. And hence, most of the places have brought it to a point that a majority of individuals can afford for such an important decision whether you need to be on a lipid-lowering therapy for the next 5, 10 years of your life or not. And insurance doesn't cover it based on like whether your doctor is ordering it up versus you I don't want to do this on, on your own preemptively? And no, it doesn't. So right now it doesn't. Actually, we in Texas, they have a bill where most of the insurances should be paying $200 out of pocket. So if there is somebody who is willing to take that case to the insurances, there's always an opportunity. But in all honesty, in our conversation, most of the patients are willing to pay that $100 to $150 out of pocket because in essence, even if it's covered by insurance, most of the time that may be the deductible or the out-of-pocket cost. You might think all the attention given to cholesterol in recent decades has been sufficient to raise awareness, but a 2023 survey commissioned by the American Heart Association found that people most at risk lack basic knowledge about the issue. The survey, conducted by the Harris Poll, included responses from 3,000 U.S. adults, more than 500 of whom reported having at some point experienced a stroke or heart attack or both. Among the survey findings are... 70% of heart attack and stroke survivors were unaware that LDL cholesterol is commonly referred to as bad cholesterol. 47% of that population was unaware of their LDL cholesterol number, and only 49% recognized the need to prioritize lowering their cholesterol. The Heart Association recommends adults 20 or older should have their cholesterol checked every four to six years. After age 40, doctors use an equation based on cholesterol numbers and other factors to calculate the patient's 10-year risk of having a heart attack or stroke. To me, the big question is what we know about causes, high cholesterol. I'm old enough that I was sort of indoctrinated in the, in the idea that it was high cholesterol foods, that it was steak and butter and eggs, and if you ate a diet rich in those things, you were going to have high cholesterol. That is not the thinking anymore? It's definitely much more complex than the simplistic views we had in the past where we had strict dietary regulations, or I would say advice against it. Now what we're learning is that there are many people who are hyper-responders. So, you know, we can, you and I both can have three eggs and a steak together and how we will respond will be differently and how much LDL that we will have will be much more significant. Now, it also depends upon what's our overall diet. Is it more fiber-rich, vegetable, fruits? Are we having more lean proteins? A lot of those combinations also affect. So definitely the role of the diet being solely driving the bad cholesterol I think so we're moving away from them. It's more around how much bad cholesterol is produced by 
the liver and how much it's glade. Of course, these are the things that do influence. Of course, things like trans fats, saturated fat, yes. On the other hand, if you're focusing more on the polysaturated fats like olive oils and salmons and fish oils, that may actually improve your LDL. Now, as far as diet is concerned, it's going to mostly affect the triglycerides, which is the fat and HDL. And you'll be surprised rather than the fat, it's the sugars and the refined carbs and the processed carbs, which are more responsible for elevated triglycerides and low HDL. So the message is, if you are able to refine your diet, you can definitely have a 10 to 15% lowering of your bad cholesterol, but a significant lowering of your triglyceride, which is the fat cholesterol, and improve the good cholesterol. If you lose weight, now there is data that about 5% reduction in the bad cholesterol can happen, but the major benefit about 50% reduction in the fat cholesterol and improvement in HDL, same with the exercise. So in essence, Todd, if you want to enjoy a steak, you can, but the advice is do it in moderation. And how about like butter and cheese? Same. You know, in all honesty, so one of the key things is as a preventive cardiologist, I have a lot of conversations on diet and I've spoken to various groups. And you can see, depending upon which side of the bed you wake up or which religion you believe in, folks have very strong opinions on the diets, be it... In our old days, it was Atkins, and then we have Mediterranean and South Beach, and now we have many other variations. Paleo diet, uh, we have the plant-based diet, vegan diet, and everyone's sure how effective their diet is. But, you know, Todd, if you critically review them, you'll see that they have, most of them are similar than differences. There are three major things that are extremely similar. Number one, Almost in all diets or lifestyles, no sugar or fructose. That's kind of like be it a plant-based diet or a Mediterranean or South Beach. Focus on cutting back as much as possible on processed and refined carbs. And thirdly, small plates. So now if you've cut out sugar and fructose and you've taken out processed carbs and you're diet is in moderation, it doesn't matter if you supplement it with salmon, red meat, lamb, a lot of vegetables, lentils, legumes. I think so that's kind of what it is. So as long as we can get this basic concept to our communities and our friends out there, I think so we'll find that lifestyle changes, adopting healthy lifestyle changes is not that difficult, especially if you want to maintain good cholesterol levels. So I've also heard of a, a new measure, lipoprotein A. What is that? It's the new kid on the block. So lipoprotein A, in essence, is the same LDL, but it has an additional layer of protein around it, which is APOA. So as you know, cholesterol cannot transport in the vessels in the blood by itself, it has to have a protein covering. Most of the traditional LDLs, like the LD, the bad cholesterol that we talk about, has a covering called APOB. And hence, some of our colleagues and folks in the community would really like to check APOB. But this has an additional covering called APOA. So that's why it's not measured by the traditional. You have to do a separate testing. Now, why it's important? 
it's important because this is what I would call the more inflamed and stickier cholesterol. So it has a higher risk of sticking with the arteries and causing the plaque buildup. That's number one. And hence, clearly, as a slightly increased risk of causing a heart attack than those individuals who don't have a higher limit. That's number one. Number two, it is more genetically determined. Uh, that's number two. So if you have it, it's clearly a predisposition that that you have some familial components. The other thing is you can't get it tested by the normal testing. So you have to have a special test order for the lipoprotein A. They're still trying to standardize it. The major thing is what do you do about it? With the LDL, we have therapies like statins and many of the other emerging, but you cannot lower lipoprotein A. Uh, right now, there are two investigational therapies which are working upstream in trying to block the production of lipoprotein A are being studied in phase three studies. We'll see if they pan out. As you know, we have our disappointments in the past with trying to increase the HDL, so it's hard to know whether lowering LP little a uh, is going to be effective. Now, so the question is, what do we do now? Who should get checked? In essence, if you have a very strong family history of heart disease, or you had a heart attack at an early age, and especially if you do not have any major risk factors like you're non-diabetic, your cholesterol numbers are fine, you were never a smoker but still had a heart attack and stroke, these are the three or four categories that you should always try to check a lipoprotein A. Now, Todd, you can ask, okay, I, we saw the lipoprotein A, it's elevated, at least it gives us an idea why they're at risk. What do you do? You maximize their preventive measures. For example, these are the ones that I will focus more intensely in lowering their bad cholesterol. If you had a heart attack, rather than trying to get your numbers traditionally, your doctor will say, get your bad cholesterol numbers below 70, we'll try to push them to 40 or lower. Uh, so that's where we would do. We'll try to be more aggressive with aspirin, their blood pressure control and lifestyle. But I would say, Todd, let's keep tuned on this issue. We're anticipating in the next 12 months to have the first insights whether addressing the lipoprotein A will make a difference. And if that's the case, I think so. It will be critically important for our very high-risk individuals. About 20% of those individuals have an elevated lipoprotein A, and we still have residual risk. So the residual risk concept is that even after lowering your bad cholesterol, there is some of the risk that we are unable to mitigate because even if you take the cholesterol down all the way to 70 and 40, about 10% of individuals still have heart attacks. And a lot of this can be covered by lowering the lipoprotein A and other items here. Dr. Nasser mentioned ongoing research into medication to treat lipoprotein A, the genetically based sticky cholesterol, that increases the risk of blockages and blood clots in the arteries. Earlier this year, the results of the first research were unveiled. In a randomized double-blind study, researchers in Australia reported that an experimental oral medication developed to target LPA lowered its levels by more than half during an early phase clinical trial. The study involved 114 participants who received either a placebo or the medication Movilaplin, the first oral drug ever developed to target LPA. 
Doses, given for 14 days, ranged from 100 to 800 milligrams. Within just 24 hours after the dose, researchers reported blood plasma levels of LPA dropped. The amount of reduction depended on the dose, but it reached 65% for some patients over the course of the trial. Movilaplin works by disrupting LPA's ability to form in the first place, important because the vessel-clogging cholesterol is so hard to reduce once it's already become established. Attempts to reduce levels through existing cholesterol treatment and changes in diet and exercise have met with little success. Movilaplin is currently undergoing a much larger study, which will test its effectiveness with much greater statistical power. So with lipoprotein A, you mentioned a lot of its family history. How much of high cholesterol generally is uh, genetic? And if it is genetic, can you do much about it? Yeah, so, and again, um, we think that LDL has a strong genetic predisposition. Now, of course, when we talk, when you and I are thinking genetics, we are in general thinking about the extreme forms. Uh, one of the most common one is what they call familial hypercholesterolemia. So if your multiple family members have very high cholesterol or they had early heart attacks in their 40s and the 50s, the most common cause is familial hypercholesterolemia, where there is a genetic defect that leads to impaired cholesterol receptors. Now, the downside of that is now you're born with LDLs of 190, 200, 250 or more, and over a period of 20, 30, 40 years, you're exposed to a significant elevated LDL, and hence increases the risk of heart attack and stroke, not in your 50s and 60s, but even in your 30s and 40s. So what do you do about it? The first thing is, as a society, I advise that most of us should at least in their 20s or early 30s start getting their cholesterol checked. And once you find that, of course, then you need to intensify the treatment. You can do genetic testing to make sure that you are not vulnerable. And if you are, it can also lead to what a concept we call it cascade screening. That means make sure your family members are also checked because there is a 25% chance that they may have it. Thirdly, they may be candidates for what we call the more intense therapies beyond statins, which all of us know, and azetamibe that's been out there for the last 20 years for newer novel therapies like the PCSK9 inhibitors that's in the market for the last almost 10 years to get your LDL as low as possible. Now, how often do we see this? This is almost, I would say, one in 200 individuals in our society, which is not meager if you look at that. There's a significant proportion of those. Now, apart from that, these are the ones who are going to have very high LDLs. Now, majority of us who have elevated LDLs may not be due to a strong single gene defect, but multiple smaller genes impacted that we call the polygenetic effect. And now they are being tests being developed that can help us understand that. But long story short, everyone should have their cholesterol testing in their 20s and 30s. And that's a great parameter for you to follow. And keeping a healthy cholesterol is a life 
lifelong commitment that we need to have. And if you have high cholesterol, then make sure that you're seen by a cardiologist or a preventive cardiologist who could get to the bottom of it and help create a more personalized treatment plan for you. Is high cholesterol not uncommon in people in their 20s? In general, I would say one in 200 will have very high. Um, about if you look at the NHANES data, which is the national representative population, we see almost more than one in three individuals, even at young age, having suboptimal LDLs. Now, the question really is, what do we do about it? Should we start them on medications? My philosophy is that at an early age, I think the focus still needs to be as much as possible on the lifestyle dietary modifications, healthy diet, exercise, weight loss, quit smoking, all of these things can get your bad cholesterol at least 10 to 15 to 20% down. And I think so that should suffice. However, if you have a lot of risk factors, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, the obesity pandemic is growing and so is with that with prediabetes, then maybe at age 35 or and above, you should start thinking about screening your arteries if you have any effect. And if you do, definitely that's the time to start very intense treatment. So the coronary artery calcium scan we talked about. Yes. Is that something that, say, by your 60s, it's probably not a bad idea for most people to do just to have a baseline? I, I would say that even earlier. Um, in general, um, the, from my standpoint, is you should start getting it by age 45. Or if Pretty much everybody, male. even without the conversation. E even without about. the conversation. So it's, it's this one-time test. It costs about $100 to $150. It takes about two to three minutes to get it done. Uh, you don't need any contrast. It does come with radiation, and the radiation is equivalent to what you get with a mammogram, which almost all women have after a certain age every year. Or, Todd, if you want to fly from New York to L.A. and be back, it's the same radiation. But it's the most accurate indicator of your heart health and whether you should commit to therapies beyond lifestyle intervention or not. Younger than 45, I would recommend if you if you have strong family history, if you have a combination of risk factors like diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, and obesity. In fact, we have shown that even in young individuals, if you do this targeted screening, you may identify one in three who get screened who have the earliest plaque buildup that you would never think of. And that's the time once you detect it, you make those significant changes and nip this process in the bud. So cholesterol science sounds to me from our conversation here is like it's still really evolving um, and seems pretty complicated. Look, uh, I would say cholesterol still remains the top risk factors for development of heart disease, but not the only one. The reason why we focus a lot on cholesterol because we also have options to treat it. And clearly, in individuals who are vulnerable to developing heart disease or already have heart disease, the number one, number two, and number three treatment that's going to lower your risk is getting your bad cholesterol under control. So that's well established. Now, extrapolating that to the general population becomes a little complex because majority of those individuals don't have heart disease. And if you don't have heart disease or plaque buildup, 
then the cholesterol numbers may not have the same significance. That means we may not have the need to put too many people on treatments or intensify on treatments, but rather focus on lifestyle management. But it will also allow us to identify a small group of individuals who are harboring the disease where we can intensify the cholesterol management and hence reduce them getting to a point where they had a heart attack or stroke. Is there a link, any link between stress and high cholesterol? Not much that we have seen. In some smaller studies, there could be an indirect link with stress via indiscreet eating, poor lifestyle, poor sleep, leading to prediabetes, insulin resistance, leading to low HDL and a high triglycerides. I think these are more indirect effect of poor lifestyle, leading to metabolic syndrome, leading to high fat contents of the triglycerides and low HDL. But really, truly, we don't think that there is a direct connection between stress and the cholesterol numbers. And is total cholesterol meaningful? I'm never quite sure of that. I'll be honest. Um, I have I hardly pay attention to the total cholesterol. Um, the most important key for me is your LDL, especially, as I said, if you are a patient who already have a known heart disease, a stroke or blockages in your leg arteries. Um, the second one is the triglycerides. And the least one that we pay attention right now is HDL. But of course, the combination is these are being used mostly for advising lifestyle interventions than anything else. So the idea of the total cholesterol being a parameter that we use to focus is we're shifting away from a more emphasis on the LDL, which is the bad cholesterol. Smoking and alcohol have much of a role? Uh, smoking is bad in, in, in the sense, let me tell you, it, it injures your arteries. So think about it. Your arteries are have more injury, and now you have a lot of fuel floating around. It just increases the risk of that high LDL getting accumulated in, under your arteries and with the high inflammation causing the oxidization of creating the plaque. So that's number one. And smoking also, once you have plaque, it just increases the risk of the plaque rupture and also increases the risk of clot formation. So if you have high cholesterol or familial hypercholesterolemia, or if you have heart disease, one of the most important intervention on top of taking the cholesterol pill is quitting smoking. So that's definitely one. Alcohol. Um, can definitely impact the triglycerides. Uh, so if you're one of those individuals whose triglycerides are historically high, um, and by the way, triglycerides can not only increase the risk for heart disease, but if they are very high, can also cause a life-threatening condition, pancreatitis, where your pancreas become inflamed and can lead to catastrophic conditions. So for individuals that we see who have very high triglycerides, cutting back on alcohol or alcohol cessation is definitely uh, one of the top recommendations. Are there warning signs of high cholesterol? I mean, short of chest pains when, when diseases set in, you know, but is there I, anything I, before that? I wish. No warning signs, really. In the end, unless and until you are born with the genetic defects, we do see individuals who may have who may come in and have cholesterol deposits 
beyond the arteries. For example, an eye examination can show a rim of cholesterol deposits or some under the skin. In very few individuals, we see deposits in their tendons. I can tell you that over the last 20 years, I've seen only three of those. So unfortunately, no signs. But fortunately, it's very it's an easy, available test that most of us are have an access to. And as long as you have access to healthcare, you're seeing your primary care, most of the primary care physicians, I'm hoping, are getting those tests for adults at age 30, 35 and above. But my suggestion is even at a young age, there's no reason not to get it once. And if they're still in that range, abnormal range, that you can then follow them up. When you prescribe statins for people, does it is it typically for life then, or can they improve and go off them? That's always one of the discussions we have with our patients. You know, my thinking is that unlike infections or antibiotics where you can have it and use it for a month or a few weeks, it addresses the condition. This is mostly genetics. Of course, you can improve your LDL with lifestyle, but the numbers may drop from if you had an LDL of 130 with lifestyle may bring it down to 110. Now, the issue is if you are a patient who had a prior heart attack, we want to get your fuel down all the way to 70 or lower, or maybe even 55. That's very unlikely to happen with lifestyle alone. Statins still remain the best choice because not only they lower the bad cholesterol, they have additional benefits like improving your inflammation and direct impact on stabilizing the plaque. So they still remain the first choice. Now, unfortunately, about 7 to 8% of individuals may unable to tolerate them because of symptoms, which is the most common muscle aches or joint aches. Thankfully, in 2023, we have additional options, a couple of other oral pills like bimpedoic acid and azitamide. And of course, the new injections, which are widely available, the Repath, the PCSK9 inhibitors, commonly known as Repath or Praluent. So definitely, my advice to the patients and the listeners are, if you're one of those patients who have heart disease, stroke, uh, my recommendation would be consider these therapies for life. The question is, it's not that, can you? The question is, should you be off? Because if you're off these medications, the cholesterol level is going to go back up again. It's going to put you again at risk of progression of disease, making those plaques more unstable and the risk for having another heart attack or stroke. And also, if you're one of those individuals who have high amount of underlying disease in absence of heart, heart attacks, for example, a high coronary artery calcium score, my advice would be the same that persist with it. It's a great once-a-day pill. I would say consider it like a vitamin that lowers your bad cholesterol, improves your inflammation, keep your heart arteries healthy, and reduce the risk of a heart attack. The, the medications that you mentioned as alternatives to statins, are those just for people who can't tolerate them well, or are, are in any way are those considered next-generation drugs that might be better than statins? I, I would say that those are more to supplement and complement because the recommendation is stick with the statin as much as you can with the highest dose. Now, I can put you on a statin and I can get your bad cholesterol, for example, into the numbers 80s or 90s. 
But now we know from studies that even if you lower it further, you can reduce the risk by another 30%. So if the statin alone doesn't do it, then we start thinking of adding these additional medications or these are also as an alternate if you are unable to tolerate statin. So the message still remains the same. Statin is still the best medication out there. If you have underlying heart disease, you should try to get on the highest dose that you can tolerate, which by the way, most of the individuals can, and then supplement with additional compounds as needed. I hear some doctors think they're almost kind of a wonder drug that more people should be on them with very moderate levels of, of high cholesterol, taking statins in low doses. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, and there are different schools of thoughts. And of course, I, I understand their viewpoint is, but I truly believe th this is an issue of patient autonomy, right? So uh, as long as everything's done in a shared decision-making process and saying, look, if there are patients who are willing to do anything and everything and they don't mind taking a statin, my view is very agnostic. I, I don't, I think that the statin, if you want to take it, even if you don't have the major risk factors, for example, if you don't have a coronary artery calcium score, your risk of having a heart attack is very low. This is very unlikely going to reduce the risk of having a heart attack. Actually, some studies have suggested that it may not. But if you're willing to lower your LDL and improve your inflammation, as long as you're on board, there's no issues. But you know, most of us in the society, and I can tell you my biggest challenge is convincing patients who actually even need it to commit to a therapy with the pill a day. So I, I think so there is definitely this dichotomy where some of the experts are trying to put too many people on statins. And I, I respect and understand their view because it's cheap, it's effective, and very few people have side effects. But the ground reality is our communities and our patients don't want to be on pills if they don't have to, however good it is. And that's why I think, again, the coronary artery calcium testing is such a great tiebreaker because if you're uncertain or you're unsure what your risk of heart attack is and whether you should commit to a great therapy like statin for lifelong, that test can give you that answer because if you don't have the disease, you may not have to take it. And if you have the disease, then that's a great incentive for you to start the preventive measures much earlier. Okay, very good. So any final message you want to leave the listeners with about what they should know about cholesterol, how they should approach it, how to maintain acceptable levels? Absolutely. I, I think so. Again, the message is don't underestimate cholesterol. Um, always, it's one of the most important risk factors for not only development, but progression of the disease causing heart attack and stroke. So the first thing is know your numbers. Of course, traditionally, uh, you're going to get the LDL, HDL, and triglycerides, and that's fine. I think so they can suffice. Make sure that your physicians, your primary care can explain you more in detail. Now, my other recommendation, if you have a very strong family history of heart disease, or you already had a heart attack at an early age, and especially if it happened in absence of major risk factors, make sure you get your lipoprotein A checked. Now, Lifestyle is key here. And then again, diet. Uh, my advice is 
any cholesterol in moderation is fine. Uh, try to avoid saturated trans fats. Uh, cut back on the carbs, refined carbs, sugars. That will affect your HDLs and the triglycerides. Make sure it's a balanced diet with more fiber, fruits, vegetables, lean meat, smaller plates. Maintain a healthy body weight. That's critical uh, because that's not only going to help maintain a good level of LDL, but also the fat cholesterol and can improve your good cholesterol. 30 minutes of moderate exercise is key. Uh, smoking is really bad, in all honesty. So try to avoid that, especially if you have heart disease or a lot of plaque buildup. Now, this should be done by everyone. Now, if you're at a point where either your primary care or your physicians recommending you to start or start considering statins or cholesterol lowering, my advice is think about getting a coronary artery calcium test because that will give you a much better indication whether you need it or not. Now, if you are one of those who already had a heart attack and stroke, then make sure that you get your LDL, the bad cholesterol, less than 70. Try to be on the highest dose of statin. Use additional cholesterol lowering to help you get there if needed. And if you have your triglycerides more than 150, then we also have a guideline recommended therapy, which is called eicosapient ethyl. It's a special type of a fish oil, which is a more purified EPA rather than the generic fish oils that can help you that. So to sum it up, cholesterol, critically important for cardiovascular health, trying to maintain optimal cholesterol levels is a lifelong commitment that should not wait till you have a heart attack or stroke. Start early, know your numbers, healthy lifestyle. And if you are one of those with the early disease, then start with the medication so that we can block this cycle of getting to a heart attack or stroke. All right. Very good. I appreciate your taking time to educate us all more about this. It was fun talking to you, Todd. Thank you okay. so much. Well, Todd, I learned a lot about cholesterol. And uh, to your point earlier, I do think I should probably go out and get mine checked because I'm way overdue. Good. It's a simple blood test too. So, I mean, you know, they'll just, they'll take some blood at your annual checkup and then a week later you'll get some numbers. Mm -hmm. So pretty easy. You get this big piece of paper or, or an email or whatever. It's got all these numbers. It's like a, it's like a cell phone bill. It's like, what are, what is this? What is the state tax? What is that? So, I mean, these numbers, you should take time to know how much you're paying for your cell phone from. It should also take time to know <laughs> You know, all, what are these health statistics? What is the point in going to get a physical if you're not going to take those numbers and, and, and learn about yourself and then do something with them, right? Yeah, I was actually, Todd, as you, you know, when I was listening, I was kind of like pulled up like my, my chart numbers because remember you and I talked about after my last physical, my LDL was like a little high um, or, you know, they say it's quote unquote high, um, but it's in that kind of like almost elevated range where he was like, yeah, you know, that's where you're starting to worry, but it's not high yet. So, you know, that was to clarify where we ended up last time we chatted about that. Todd and I talk about our health numbers all the time. <laughs> Kim, you and I should start talking about our health numbers. What are yeah. your health numbers? Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but I have had a physical. I think um, listening to the episode, what I was struck by was that I didn't know about the equation that after you hit 40, there's the equation about your likelihood to have a stroke or heart attack in the next 10 years. Um, I semi recently had a milestone birthday. So mm -hmm. now that is another cool new fact I've Kim learned about my 21, age. <laughs> <laughs> Again. <laughs> so yeah, 
fun. Well, the, his analogy of like dump trucks, I was like, wow. I liked the analogy. That's like, a good visual. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I thought that was very unique. I had not heard that term before. Yeah. Uh, and the gas, LDL being the gas, um, you know, because I've also heard we're not really technically supposed to call LDL quote unquote bad cholesterol anymore. But I think calling it gas is a very like clear <laughs> indicator of mm-hmm. uh, it's not great. Yeah. So, you know, I've always paid close attention to my my cholesterol numbers, unlike you. I've kind of tracked them over the years, and, and they've always been solid. Could be better. Um, but uh, I focused a lot on dietary cholesterol, of course, because that was what was emphasized. Now I know that the more important thing is, is saturated fats and, and uh, processed foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and exercise. I'm pretty good at that, all that already. So um, I don't, I don't think I have any issues, but next up for me is to get that calcium artery scan that he talked about. Yeah. Uh, which, which is apparently a, a pretty easy to do procedure. Yes. Nothing um, to be intimidated about. Yes. You don't have to do that yet. Uh, Kim, it's coming up for you. He said, um, that seemed kind of early to me, but it's definitely in my age range now that I should probably get that. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of On Health with Houston Methodist. We drop new episodes every Tuesday morning. So be sure to share, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And until then, stay tuned, stay healthy.